welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. Cool. Okay. So this one's going to be a bit shorter, and then we might do a, a short Q&A. Um, but the last thing that... Um, or I guess I'll talk about a couple of things, but the main thing I want to talk about is the greatest commandment and, and give that some context. But um, before I do that, I, f- I forgot to mention one thing, and that is um, a lot of people like to break the law apart. Have you ever come across this where people are like, well, yeah, you can have a bacon roll. Yeah, you can have a tattoo. Uh, yeah, you can wear clothes made from nylon and cotton. But we still need the Ten Commandments. Uh, we still need these laws, and, and what they do is they try and like prioritize the laws. Like this one's more important than that one, and this one's more important than that. And there's a few different people that would tackle that and go, "Oh well, like you know, all the laws are the same, and they're all seen the same, or whatever." And and you can view it however you want. The truth is, um, as far as my studying has revealed, I don't think many Jews. There was probably a few in, that fell into the camp, but most Jews probably wouldn't have seen one law as more important than the other in and of themselves intrinsically. Um, they might have wrestled with like what's the most important or how do we do this as, as revealed by people approaching Jesus. But for me, the, the whole thing summed up really quickly if you just look at 2 Corinthians 3, which I read earlier. You know, remember, um, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 says the law is a ministry of death. And verse 9 says the ministry of condemnation. Verse 10, it's got no glory at all compared to the new covenant. Verse 11, it's fading away. And then verse 14 and 15, it says that anywhere it's preached, it creates a mind-hardening and heart-hardening veil to Jesus. Remember those passages? Pretty strong, right? Well, the context of that, if you reverse a couple of verses, it starts saying, the law, comma, there's no commas in the Greek, but the law, which is engraved in stone, is a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation, has no glory at all. It creates a mind-hardening and heart-hardening veil. So which laws were engraved in stone? Only the Ten Commandments. So if you're going to say, well, this is more important than that, and this is... The problem is, even if you take the Ten Commandments and go, well, these are the most important, that's fine. Like, I mean, I'd say you've got a fairly good argument for that. Like, yeah, those are more important than, like, you know, don't pick up a donkey on the Sabbath. Got it. Yeah, absolutely. Don't kill a guy. I, I would put that as a higher law as well. But the problem is these New Testament passages aren't talking about getting a tattoo or eating some bacon. They're talking about the whole shebang. And if they're only talking about one segment of it, it's the best ones. And so that suddenly opens up this real big thing. Or what are you saying? Like, it's okay to kill people? And it's like, no, no, no. Remember what the message was. The law is good, perfect, and holy. Killing people is bad. You know, not having an affair, good idea. Don't have an affair. Um, only worshipping God and no other gods, great idea. That's a good, perfect, and holy idea. Problem is, that law can't do those. It can't make you good, perfect, or holy. It can't make you do the law. It can only tell you what you need to do. Um, like in Romans 3.20, it says the law can, fix, uh, can reveal sin, but it cannot fix it. You know, the law is like a mirror. You look in the mirror and you see dirt on your face, but you don't try and clean your face with a mirror. You need a separate tool for that. And so while the law reveals you've got an issue, it doesn't actually provide a solution to the issue. Um, so it's important that we, we recognize that. And if you come across people that are like trying to departmentalize de- de- the, the law and say, well, yeah, but that might be true about li- these smaller laws. But the big laws, they're still important. You've got to remember, you know, no, uh, no uh, killing, no this, no that. And, and the truth is, if we're talking about living based under 
I'm going to try and do what's good and try and do what's wrong versus I'm just going to do what Jesus tells me. Who thinks that that's going to end in you going on a killing spree? Like, right? I mean, if, if, it fascinates me that pastors are more concerned about if you take away the rules, they'll suddenly, all their congregants are going to go crazy. And all I would say to that is, what the hell are you teaching your people that they want to go on a killing spree and the only thing holding them back is they think it's wrong? Like, can you imagine the only reason you're not faithful to your wife is because it's wrong? Like, what kind of relationship do you have with your wife? It's like, hopefully the real reason you don't want to commit adultery on your wife is because you are madly in love with your wife. Right? And it's the same deal. It's like, I don't want to be led by like, that's bad and that's wrong. Or this is the right thing to do. I want to be led by my passion, by my heart, by my desire, by God in me, leading me and showing me a way. Um, and so I think that's really, really key is that um, we don't uh, lead in that way, that we don't equip in that way. And actually, we're wary of that. We're wary that that might be in us as well, that we want to force rules and regulations on people because we don't trust them. And the issue there is that they are not trustworthy. The issue is that we need to help establish them and connect them to God and help form in them a trustworthiness, <coughs> help form in them a full of grace, full of life, full of an awareness of who they are in, in Christ. Um, because all that you're revealing in that, if you need rules and laws to keep people in place, all you're revealing is you're not actually equipping them to be healthy whole people. Um, and all you're doing is boxing them in more and more so they don't be who they are, feel they truly are, which is bad. Um, and so this is what I see again and again and again is pastors teaching people you're sinful and filthy and then forcing lots of rules to stop them being sinful and filthy. Whereas actually if they started focusing on teaching you're righteous, you're holy, this is who you truly are, you're good, your identity is pure. If you focus on teaching that, you don't have to worry about boxing them in and telling them do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. Because if they truly know who they are, they're not going to do the wrong things and they're going to do what's right. They're walking with Jesus and, and, and walking in that. So that's just a, an aside, kind of probably should have belonged in the last um, message. But what I want to talk about in this session is, at one point, Jesus has a man come to him and he says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment or what's the best law? And, uh, and he, he does what Jesus does best, right? He goes, well, what do you think it is, right? <laughs> Jesus never answers questions. <laughs> he just asks lots of questions back. So he's like, well, what do you think it is? And, and the guy goes, well, I think it's to love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your heart, all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself and Jesus goes that's one that's two commandments not one no and Jesus says yeah that's right that is the greatest commandment and in that commandment all of the law is summed up now here's something that's quite interesting that doesn't mean you should try and do it when he says all the law is in that commandment it doesn't mean do it He's saying all the laws in that commandment. Really important that we see that. Because what's the deal? Have you ever, if I say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength, is that encouraging? Have you ever been encouraged when you heard that? It's like the most discouraging passage in the Bible because we know we don't love our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul and all our strength. In fact, if I said just for the next 15 minutes, focus on loving the Lord your God with all your mind, all your soul, all your heart, all your... I bet you at some point your mind would drift off to something else or you, your, you know, like your strength just wouldn't be enough. And you know, The point is, he's saying, I'm summing up the whole law for you in one thing and you can't do that anyway. So it's still, the purpose of that law is to point to you and go, you can't do this in your own strength. Now, John himself quotes the greatest commandment and says, here, like, you should walk in this. This is 
Jesus gave us a new commandment. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with your strength. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. Absolutely, that's what you should do. But he actually, he says, and explicitly says, we can only love God because he loves us first. And so he reframes the whole thing. He says, don't try and do the greatest commandment. What you try and do is receive his love. If you do that, you'll do the greatest commandment. You'll love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength if you stop trying to do it and just accept his love. Because when you are loved by him, you will love him in return. When you are loved by him, you will love your neighbor. John says that as well, doesn't he? He says, if you say you love God and don't love your neighbor, you don't love God. What's he saying? He says, you have to have an encounter with the love of God and that will equip you to love your neighbor. You have to have an encounter with the love of God and that will equip you to love yourself. You have to have an encounter with the love of God and that will equip you to love God. And John's gospel is really interesting. So John talks about this in the epistles, but he also talks about it in his apostle, uh, in his, um, his gospel. Um, it's really interesting. Have you ever noticed that Jesus has favorites? Does it ever like disconcert you a little bit? Make you a little nervous that Jesus seems to have favorites? So you look through the gospels and Jesus has like the 12, right? And that's who he like does life with, these 12 people. And other people just aren't allowed to hang out with him in the same way. Yeah, he had 72 people that he sent out into the different towns. And yeah, he had like 120 people that were up in the upper room who got the Holy Spirit first. And, you know, like, yeah, he had like certain masses come to his meetings. So he he had different levels of relationship. But it seems that there was like this steady, like, uh, narrowing down towards the circle of trust you know it's like these 12 people like when the crowds left you go all right that's what this this is what this parable meant and he explained to them you know these 12 people were like his favorites he he treated them with more um uh intimacy and uh favoritism than the people that were outside that group and it's hard to get around that right i mean he just these were his guys that were closest to him but have you ever noticed like there's three guys in that that are like he treats better than everyone else as well not not he treats better in the sense of like you know jesus was an ass to anyone else but like just that they get more access and so there's peter james and john right and you see it again and again in the stories you ever think of that like so they camp at the bottom of a hill and they're setting up for a night and they're just relaxing maybe they got a fire out and they're eating some food and james uh, jesus goes hey i'm gonna go up this mountain uh peter james john you come with me and so they go up the mountain right and what happens? Like, you know, Moses and Elijah come and hang out with them. And then God is there. And Jesus, like, starts glowing like a light bulb. And, like, Peter does his usual thing of, like, hey, let's set up a tent. Like, and let's make this, like, last forever. Um, and Peter's like, no, you're an idiot. Come on, let's go back down. And so eventually they go back down this, the hill. Can you imagine the rest of the disciples? So you're, like, you've had a night, like, sleeping in your tent. You wake up in the morning. Maybe you've got a fire going again. You're making some fish sandwiches because they always had fish and bread um, so you're eating your fish sandwiches that you eat and the, the three disciples come down with Jesus and Jesus is like glowing like a light bulb yeah like and like you can just tell Peter, James and John are like you know like strutting down the mountain hey guys how was your night you know tell us all about your amazing night and they're like oh we didn't do anything we just chatted a bit and I went to bed and it's like oh yeah we didn't do much either we just hung out with um, Elijah yeah, no, 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 not Elijah that sells, uh, you know, shoehorns for horses. No, no, no. The Elijah, you know, in the Bible, that one. Yeah, yeah, the one that went up in the chariot. That guy. That's who we hung out with. And then the other guy was there. Who was that? Uh, Moses. Yeah, you remember Moses from the Bible? Like, the biggest deal in our entire faith. Yeah, we hung out with him last night. He's kind of a cool guy. Yeah, really liked him. 
different from how you'd expect, but you'd have to be there, really. Uh, and then, oh, who was that other guy? Hey, James, who was that other guy? Oh, yeah, God. God showed up on the mountain, guys, and we were there. You weren't, right? I mean, can you imagine being the other disciples? You'd be so pissed off, right? Like, Jesus, come on. Surely you could take all 12 of us up the mountain. Like, seriously? Or, like, you know, you remember when um, Jairus' daughter dies? Do you remember that? And, like, Jesus is, like, taking his time, wandering through town and healing people and stuff. And eventually gets there and she's dead. And uh, he's like, all right, everyone out. You know, everyone get out of this room. I'm going to heal her. So everyone gets out and he's like, oh, well, Peter, James, and John, you can stay. And so they're in the, in the room, right? And then Jesus does his thing and he raises her from the dead and she runs out. And, and like, I know. Like, I mean, Peter was like this hot-headed, crazy guy, right? He was always trying something and like pushing. Like, he was, he was a passionate guy. And James and John were called the sons of thunder, okay? Like, they were passionate as well. You know that right after that little dead girl ran out of the room alive, you know Peter, James, and John came walking out and were like, Hey guys, did you uh, see a dead girl walk by by any chance? Yeah, no, we, we saw you know, Jesus raised her from the dead. It was pretty cool, pretty cool. Yeah, you had to be there, had to be there. I mean, you know they were like living it up, that like they got access to some seriously cool stuff. Like, did you ever think about that stuff? Like they got better access than Bartholomew and Philip and Andrew, right? And what do you do with that? But, but one, one thing that jumps out at me even more is there's another guy in there who seems to be like even more in the inner circle. See, James, John, and Peter are there, right? But then we have the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I always look at that and I'm like, man, that's like such a like epic position to be in. Like, right, wouldn't you want to be the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? You've got like Peter and Andrew, and then you've got the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm like, wow. That'd be nice, right? But you know what's funny? That's what John calls himself. John calls himself the disciple of Jesus. You know what Mark calls him? John. You know what Matthew calls him? John. Luke? Yeah, he calls him John, right? It's only John that thinks he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Like, right? He's like, hey, everybody, I'm the best. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved, right? He's, like, he's obsessed with how much Jesus loves him. And I think that's really interesting, right? Because actually, he only calls himself that five times in four different stories. And so, if we look at those stories, because he calls himself John elsewhere, if we look at those stories, you can see some really key things. Because he's always with Peter, and he's always contrasted against Peter. And so the first time you see it is in the Last Supper. They're hanging out, having the Last Supper. And for this analogy, I'm going to give you a bit more breadth. I'll, I'll pull on the stories from all of the Gospels. That story's in all of the Gospels. And so we'll flesh out the story in a bit more and have some of the details that are kind of in all of the stories. But can you imagine this dinner? Like, there's the 13 of you, and you're all sitting in a row for the photo um, at your 26-person seat uh, table. Um, and like you're, you're doing your thing and you're hanging out and you're having your meal and it's really nice and Jesus is doing his weird thing of like hey here's my body eat some bread you know here's some blood drink this wine and like you know but Jesus is weird and he does things like that so that's cool and we're having a good time and then at a certain point Jesus suddenly goes all right everybody got an announcement one of you gonna betray me I'm gonna be brutally murdered tonight or in a couple of days uh, wait what like that's quite like wait what what like talk about ruining the party right Jesus like just like puts like screeching brakes on and just goes oh hey everybody got an announcement to make one of you's going to betray me and what's interesting is there's a lot of stuff going on at this you see Peter jumps up and what does he say he says I won't betray you it won't be me and so Peter is confident he won't betray Jesus 
In fact, he says, I love you, Lord. I won't betray you. What's interesting is John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Peter declares, I'm the one that loves Jesus. This is contrast between the two because it says the disciple whom Jesus loved was lying on Jesus's breast, had a head on his chest. And so you've got these two contrasts of Peter saying, I love you, God. I won't betray you. And you've got John saying, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's relaxing. He's resting. What's interesting is if you follow those two characters, what happens? What does Peter do? He betrays Jesus. Not in the same way as Judas, but he betrays him. He says three times, so I don't know that guy. See, he was relying on his love for Jesus. He was trying to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, all your sit. And he fell flat on his face. John, on the other hand, knew I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. What happens? He's the one that's recorded being there at the bottom of the cross. The only disciple that's recorded in history to be there. He stayed with him the whole way. And not only that, Jesus on the cross, what does he say? He says, John, right? You, you're looking at Jesus in his ultimate moment of humanity. He's broken on the cross. He's dying. And what does he say? He says, John, can you look after my mom? Can you imagine God himself going, John, can you look after my mom for me? Such a broken, such a frail thing to say. I mean, this is God who's currently taking care of the sins of the whole world. And he looks on his disciple whom he loves and says, could you do me a favor and look after my mom? You see, if you are going to stand on your love for God, you're going to screw up. You're going to slip up. But if you trust that God loves you, you'll be positioned to love him in return. You'll be positioned to do what he asks of you. You'll be positioned to look after his mom if that's what he needs. There's another thing interesting that happens at that table. Like, let's remember that Peter has just said, hey, I, I won't betray you, yeah? But actually what's interesting is that the story in John records, and this is really interesting. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. It says, Peter asks the disciple whom Jesus loved, ask Jesus who it will be. Have you ever noticed that? So Peter goes, hey, John, who asked Jesus who it's going to be? Well, first of all, they're at a table of 13 people. And also, he just spoke to Jesus saying, I won't betray you. So isn't it weird that he suddenly goes, hey, John, could you ask him who it's going to be? Like, what's going on there? And again, I think there's a contrast here. I think if you're relying on your love for God to dictate how good your relationship is, how good your relationship? It's as good as you love right now. And I don't know about you, but I know for a fact that I don't love God perfectly all the time. I just don't. Like, you know, I, I look at that, love your Lord your God with all your heart and all this, and I'm like, man, I screw up a lot. Like, there's times where that is not everything in me is, is focused on God and everything in me is loving God. And so in those moments where you know I don't have perfect love for God, there's a doubt of will he share with me everything he's doing? Will he have that level of relationship that I desire. See, if you're, if you're basing your relationship with God on your love for him, your relationship will always be unstable. But John isn't basing his relationship for, on his love for God. His relationship is based on, I'm the one Jesus loves. So he turns to Jesus. It's really funny. And the story is so weird. Like Peter's like, ask Jesus who it will be. And John just goes, who's it going to be, Jesus? And Jesus goes, the guy over there dipping his bread. Like, it's not even a big conversation. It's not like, 
all right, John, I'll tell you after Peter leaves because I'm not really happy with him right now. I mean, it's, it's not none of that. It's just like, oh, the guy over there. Like, to Jesus, it's not a big deal. But to Peter, somehow it's become a big deal. And to John, it's not a big deal. Why? Well, Jesus loves me. Of course he'll tell me. I'm the one he loves. Why wouldn't he tell me something like that? And you see, if you can get to a place where you, you don't build your relationship based on how much you love God, but instead your relationship is built on how much does Jesus love me, you'll never doubt that he's going to talk to you. You'll never doubt that he's in relationship with you. You'll never doubt that he'll tell you the deepest, darkest secrets of the world. Like He, he will relate to you in a pure, perfect way because he loves you in a pure, perfect way. There's a couple other places we see this disciple whom Jesus loved. The next one is really, really obscure. And I've, I've looked at this a lot. And, and if I'm honest, I, I'm kind of doing what I, I often kind of get a bit annoyed about uh, is that people kind of like make something out of a scripture that I'm like, man, that's pretty weak. That's pretty loose. Um, but I just don't know what it's about otherwise. And so I've been mulling over it and, I, and, and I'm going to share this and you can take it, think about it. You can throw it away or whatever. But I don't know what the point is outside of this. Outside of the fact that this is a story where it says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which it only says five times in four stories, and it's contrasted with Peter. The next time you see it is Jesus has died. He's risen from the dead, and the, the, the women have gone to the grave, and it's empty. And so they run back to the disciples to tell them, don't they? And they bump into Peter and John. And they say, oh, the, the, the tomb's empty. You know, they're freaking out. They're like totally like, like nuts. Like, this is crazy. What's going on? And what does it say? It says... Peter and John ran to the tomb. Now, Peter left first, but the disciple whom Jesus loved got there first. And you're like, seriously, John, you're writing the Bible here. Do you really think now is the time to brag about how much faster you are than Peter? Right? Because that's, that's basically the whole story. Like, it's not more to that part. And you're like, why is that relevant? Like, what's going on? And then I think, well, I think it's to do with the fact that John only calls himself a disciple whom Jesus loved in a few points, and it's always contrasting Peter. And I think there's something here we can maybe learn about it based on this one who loves Jesus and one whom Jesus loves. Because you see, Peter's excited. Could Jesus be back from that? I mean, Peter loved Jesus, and like he really did love Jesus. It was his, it was his friend, his, his, his rabbi, his teacher. Like he was passionately excited about seeing Jesus, but he also had in the back of his head, man, I really screwed up. Right? So he's excited to run to the tomb and maybe see Jesus, maybe meet Jesus. But in the back of his head is also, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? Because I said, I love you. I'll never betray you. And I did. I totally screwed up. And his relationship being based on my love for Jesus means that as he's running to Jesus, there's something going on in his head. There's something slowing him down. There's something causing him to... He still wants to get there. He still wants to connect with Jesus. He still wants to love Jesus and show it, lavish his affection. But there's something there going... Uh, and, and I don't know if you've ever experienced that with God. You're passionate about God. You love God. You're delighted about God. But you're sitting there going, oh, but I've got that sin and that stupid thing. And he's told me again and again, like, you know, that's not who I am, but I keep doing it. And, and, and it holds you back from connecting with him on some level. But John, he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. The only thing that's motivating him as he's running is, I bet Jesus can't wait to see me, right? He's a, he, it's all about, Jesus loves me. Like, 
man, he's going to be excited that I get there. And so there's nothing holding him back, nothing at all. And so you could take what you want from that passage, maybe have a look at it and read about it and pray about it yourself, just meditate on it a bit. But that's something that I, I've been considering about that contrast. Um, but, but moving on, the last time we see this, the disciple whom Jesus loved is after um, the resurrection, after they've met with Jesus, after they put his fingers in his side and like all these different things, um, they're on the boat and they're fishing, aren't they? And classic the disciples, they suck at fishing, right? They're fishermen and they suck at fishing. Um, so they're doing their thing, not catching fish. They come in on the way back in and a guy on the beach goes, hey, you catch it hanging? They're like, no. And he's like, no surprise there. He's like, why don't you chuck your nets on the other side, right? So as per usual, they throw the nets over it and they catch tons of fish, right? And in this moment, Peter goes, that's Jesus. And so he puts his jacket on, jumps in the water, swims to the shore. Now, it's a bit weird that he puts his jacket on. I've got a theory here, right? This is pretty profound, right? You're going you're gonna to heard a few things about this, but I think this is the most profound. Be ready to note this one down. I think the last time we saw Peter in water was the time he was walking on water, and it didn't go so well for him. So I reckon when it says he put his jacket on, I reckon he's putting a life jacket on just to be safe, all right? That's my, my theory. How we think about that, right? So anyway, he puts his jacket on, he swims to the shore, and then he has this weird conversation with Jesus, doesn't he? Have you ever read this and just thought, what the heck? So he walks along the beach and he says, um, and, he's, Peter, uh, and Jesus turns to Peter and he says, hey, Peter, do you love me? And, Jesus, and Peter's like, yeah, I love you. And he's like, feed my sheep. And then he goes, hey, Peter, do you love me? And he's like, yeah, I love you. And he's like, well, feed my sheep. And he's like, hey, Peter, do you love me? And he's like, yeah, I love you. And he's like, feed my sheep. And you're like, are these guys having like some sort of combined stroke? Like, what's even happening right now? Like, is this like the Matrix caught in a loop? Like, what? It's so bizarre, right? And, and, and one of the reasons this is so bizarre is in the English and in the German as well, we have this one word for love. But in the Greek, there's a few different words. There's four actually words that um, talk about the type of love um, that can be used. And in this passage, there's a couple of types of love in play in this conversation. And I think it's pointing at this thing, this very thing about, do you love me? Um, you see, the two types of love that are mentioned um, are, gosh, my brain has gone completely blank. Um, Types of love. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of the actual words in Greek. Uh, my brain is like, um, Eros is not it. Oh, Lord, help me. I've taught us hundreds of times as well. <laughs> Um, anyway, the first type is the type of, it'll, it'll come to me and I'll give you it in a second. The first type of love is the love that a friend has for another, a love that a family member has for another. Um, I'm there. Yeah, agape and, and fila, yeah. Um, thanks, sorry. Um, right, so the first type is, is um, fila or philo. Uh, depends how you pronounce it. But this type of word means the love that a friend or a family member has for another. It's really deep. It's, it's powerful. It's, it's, it's a real love. You know, you, I'm sure you can think of different people in your life that you really love. But the truth is, there's moments where you also want to grab them by the neck and throttle them. You know? <laughs> or there's moments where you're just like, oh, I've had it with that person. Or there's moments where you don't give them your undivided, pure, devoted love. Right? Just because that's just life. You know, you don't, you've only so much love to give in the world. And... That's, that's the, the word phila. And, and the other word is the word agape. And that's the love that God loves us with. It's, the, it's this unconditional, powerful, unrelenting love that is just so 
epic, so pure, so perfect. And so what happens is on the beach, we have Peter and Jesus walking along. And remember Peter, the last time that it's recorded that he connected with Jesus, and there's a few times that he potentially did, but the last time we, we know was at the, at the table. And he says, I love you, Lord. I won't betray you. And that word love is agape. He says, I, I love you. I adore you. I've got a perfect, absolute, unconditional love for you. I won't betray you. How did that work out? <laughs> right? And so can you imagine? They're walking along the beach, and the first thing Jesus says to Peter at least that we have recorded in the Gospels. There's maybe more that happened. I'm sure there was because um, he connected with them in the upper rooms and, you know, like, I mean, different things happened. But he says, hey, Peter, do you agape me? Like, that just feels like a knife in the heart, right? I mean, all of a sudden you're just like, oh. I mean, I promise I wouldn't betray you because I agape you, because I loved you so much. And you're asking me, do I agape you? It's like, it's almost like Jesus is going, hey, Peter, how did that agape work out? How did that perfect love you have for me work out? And it's interesting, Peter's response. What does he say? He says, I have feel for you. I have the love of a friendship for you. Peter's come off his high horse. He's humbled himself and he says, no, I really do love you. I really do love you, but it's not perfect. And so it all of a sudden becomes really key that Jesus turns around and says, feed my sheep. What does he say? He's saying, you still have value. You still have purpose. You still have a role. I will still use you. What's he saying? I don't care if you have agape. And then he turns around again. And he says, but Peter, do you have agape for me? And he's like, no, I've got Fila for you. That's all I've got. I've only got that, Jesus. And he says, okay, feed my sheep. And then the third time Jesus says, hey, Peter, do you have Fila for me? And he says, yeah, yeah, that's what I have. And he goes, great, feed my sheep. And then he goes on to say, he says, Peter, when you were young, you picked yourself up and you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted to go. What's he saying? He's saying you were independent. You did what you wanted. You did what you thought was right. You did what you wanted to do. He's saying, but when you are old, someone else will pick you up. Someone else will dress you and someone else will take you where you need to go. And it says that this is talking about how he would die. But actually, I think there's something really deep as well as that, that he's saying to Peter right here. He's saying, hey, Peter, when you were young and immature, you thought it was all about me getting up, doing the thing, dressing, going where I need to go. But actually, as you mature, as you grow old, you're going to learn it's actually about letting someone else pick you up, letting someone else dress you, letting someone else guide you as to where you need to go. And what I love about this is that Peter, the same guy, in his two uh, letters he goes on nine tangents completely unrelated to what he's talking about just goes off on a complete tangent just boasting about how much God loves him he just goes nuts he's like God loves me this much it's like his love is insane he loves you this much too and like just completely like Peter went from the disciple who loved Jesus to the disciple whom Jesus loved he had that translation uh, trans, uh, transformation he had that shift and it totally changed who he was it totally changed how God could use him it totally changed how he could change the world and so this is my challenge to you is when we talk about the law we talk about what's right and what's wrong I don't care how wrong it is if it's worshipping Satan I'm saying don't put it on your list of things you're not going to do because if you love Jesus and you're walking with Jesus and you're letting Jesus love you, you're not going to worship Satan. But actually, on the flip side, I'm also saying, I don't care how good it is as well. 
even if it is love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength, I'm saying, don't go there. Don't try and do that in your own strength. Because when you try and do that in your own strength, you fall on your face. Because you're actually, in trying to love God, you're separating yourself from God, saying, I'm an independent entity that can try and do this. Whereas if you come back to the place of me, uh, we instead of me, that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, that it's me and Jesus on a journey, when you come to that place and you know that Jesus loves you, you will always do what's right. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. You will love your neighbor, and you will love yourself. Thank you for listening to the Destiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.